Last time we spoke about the absolutely horrifying account of both Operation Sago and the associated work done by Unit 731 for its withdrawal purposes. As a result of the Doolittle Raid, Japan unleashed an operation of vengeance upon not just the American pilots, but the local Chinese population as well, whom aided them. When the Japanese completed their operation against the airbases in Zhejiangjiangxi, in order to prevent the Chinese from quickly rebuilding and reoccupying the territory, the Japanese unleashed Unit 731. Unit 731 released the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse upon the populace, to terrifying effect. They spread typhoid, plague, cholera, and anthrax. Approximately 250,000 Chinese civilians would die because of Operation Sago, and even some of the IGA troops, 1,700, would succumb to Unit 731's biological attacks. However, today, we will be talking about a rather lesser-known part of the Pacific War. Although small in scale, Japan tried to attack the American West Coast to send the same kind of fear into their populace that Japan felt during the Doolittle Raid. This episode is the War on the American Pacific Coast. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. Please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you're still hungry for some more Pacific War history content, why don't you check my personal channel out at the Pacific War channel over at YouTube, where I have episodes going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Check it out, it means a lot to me. Another episode where I am literally kicking myself for not simply writing the podcast first and then proceeding to write the associated YouTube episode. Yes, it was I who wrote the YouTube version of this episode for the Kings and Generals YouTube channel. And while I'm stating that, I want to reiterate, I am not writing all of them. We have an incredibly talented member on KNG named Ivan, and he writes the vast majority of them. And I can tell you that quite personally, because I have to edit all of them, and he is fantastic at what he does. Now to give you some rather silly insight into how I usually write these podcasts, usually I take a look at the script for the YouTube episode, usually written by Ivan, and I gauge the elements that he wrote about, and I scramble to add more information and find subjects and events not mentioned in that said episode. I also try hard to not use the same sources as him so that it comes off differently and gives a different perspective. However, when it's me who writes the YouTube episode, I end up having to regurgitate most of the information I already put into that said YouTube episode. A ton of these episodes were written a very long time ago before this podcast was even a thing, so I had not thought to write the podcast first and then write the YouTube episode later. However, as your dutiful host, 
I assure you, I am going to be going deep into my notes, and I am going to wrangle up as much additional information and some extra information to really give this one some flavor. But saying all that, that was your sneak peek into the chaotic writing process. Without further ado. Now you would be forgiven to think that the Aleutian Islands were the only North American territory to be attacked by Japan during World War II. Perhaps you even heard about the weather balloon attacks later on in the war that was an absolute disaster for Japan. But can you believe that literally a week after the attack on Pearl Harbor, nine submarines of the IGN 6th Fleet began attacking the United States Pacific Coast? Yep, Japan tried to disrupt the American Pacific shipping lanes very early on, as you would expect they would try to do. It was a no-brainer to try and use their submarines for hitting America's commerce, and potentially any loose warships. But Japan also took this an entire step further and hit targets on American soil. At dawn of December the 7th, 1941, the I-26 ran into the cargo ship SS Cynthia Olsen. The I-26 had been sent to patrol the area around Hawaii, and when the order to climb Mount Nitaka was given, she was ordered to attack the nearest shipping targets possible. The I-26 had found the SS Cynthia Olsen early on and pursued her during the night, awaiting the commencement of the attack on Pearl Harbor. When the attack began at 8 a.m. Hawaiian time, the I-26 surfaced next to Cynthia Olsen and fired a warning shot at her. The cargo ship immediately sent up an SOS signal and the crew began to abandon ship on two lifeboats. The I-26 proceeded to fire 18 rounds from her 5.5-inch gun just at around 1,000 yards away, setting the poor cargo ship ablaze. 20 minutes after opening fire, the I-26 heard the famous Tora 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 message, indicating that Pearl Harbor had been attacked and taken by complete surprise. The I-26 then submerged and fired a single torpedo, sinking the cargo ship and making the SS Cynthia Olsen the first American merchantman to be lost by a Japanese submarine attack after the war was officially on. Then on December the 9th of 1941, the I-6 reported a sighting of a Lexington-class carrier alongside two cruisers just off Oahu. The Japanese thought this had to either be the Lexington or the Saratoga, Though in truth, neither were in the vicinity. Commander of the 6th Fleet, Vice Admiral Shimizu, aboard the light cruiser Katori at the Kwajalein Atoll, gave orders to all the submarines of the Submarine Squadron 1, excluding a special attack force, to hunt down and sink the carrier. The next day, the I-23 surfaced and saw some American patrol planes, and in a panic, she crash-dived, descending to a depth of 120 meters, something quite dangerous for the submarine. While hunting the carrier, the I-10 ended up 800 miles southwest of Hawaii, and on the night of December the 9th, ran into the SS Donrail, which was on a voyage from Suva to Vancouver, British Columbia, holding cargo of sugar and pineapples. Sounds delicious. She fired a torpedo at her, and missed. So she surfaced and began shelling the ship with 20 rounds. Dunrail's crew panicked and they abandoned ship. One shell struck a starboard lifeboat, killing everybody aboard. 
Donrail sank within two hours as the I-10 reportedly machine gun fired upon the fleeing survivors. 27 of Donrail's passengers were killed in the massacre, leaving 16 survivors out of a crew of 42. Ultimately, only eight would survive the trip, reaching Tarawa in the Gilbert Islands over 38 days later. A horrifying experience, to be sure. The I-21 had engine problems and surfaced only to be chased down by some dauntless patrols, forcing her to make an emergency dive. On December the 11th, the I-9 went 800 miles northeast of Oahu and surfaced right next to the unarmed Matson Line steamer, the SS Lahaina, which was returning to Hawaii with a cargo of 745 tons of molasses and 300 tons of scrap iron. The I-9 fired a warning shot at Lahaina as she scrambled to put out an SOS signal and her crew began to abandon the ship. The I-9 proceeded to fire 25 rounds at her, scoring 8 hits, setting her ablaze. A few days later, Lahaina's crew attempted to reboard the ship, but her fires and flooding were simply out of control, and she eventually sank. Two crew members would die of exposure, while another two died of suicide. 30 remaining survivors would reach Kauhulu Mai by December the 21st. On December the 13th, Nine submarines of the squadron were given new orders. They were now going to hit the American West Coast shipping lanes. Then, later that same day, they got an even more exciting new order on top of that one. Not only were they going to hit the shipping lanes, they were going to try and bombard the U.S. West Coast. Vice Admiral Shimizu instructed the team, the I-26, 9, 10, 15, 17, 19, 23, and the I-25 to hit the shipping, but to limit one torpedo per ship. He also instructed them that they would each fire 30 rounds on the evening of December the 25th, Christmas Day, at specific targets across the western coast of the United States. Rear Admiral Tsutomu Saito aboard the I-9 was to be the overall commander of the bombarding operation. Each submarine had its own designated target before the Christmas bombardment date. Now, these nine submarines had a range of approximately 15,000 miles, a surface speed of around 23 knots. They were armed with 18 torpedoes and 5.5-inch deck guns. The nine submarines were strategically located based on pre-war intelligence to give them the best opportunity to attack Allied shipping lines most commonly used by American merchantmen. Four submarines, the I-19, 15, 25, and the 26, were ordered to the most important locations. The I-19 was off Los Angeles Harbor, the I-15 off San Francisco Bay, the I-25 off the mouth of the Columbia River, and the I-26 off the Strait of Juan de Fuca, the important waterway leading into and out of the Port of Seattle. The other five submarines were assigned to locations that had been deemed less crucial, but nonetheless, they would see some of the most action. The I-9 was off Cape Blanco in Oregon, the I-17 off Cape Mendocino of California, the I-23 off Monterey Bay, California, the I-21 off Estero Bay of California, and the I-10 off of San Diego. Just an hour before dawn of December the 18th, Captain Kozo Nishio aboard the I-17 came across the U.S. freighter Samoa, 15 miles off Cape Medicino, carrying some lumber. 
The Samoa was captained by Nels Sines and heading for San Diego. Moments before the Samoa crossed the bow of the I-17, first mate John Leitonen, who was on watch at the time, spotted a dim light from the approaching enemy submarine and he yelled to his captain, A submarine is attacking us! In the pre-dawn haze, the I-17 had switched her 30cm searchlight on the vessel as Captain Nail Signs, who had been asleep, was rushed awake and ordered the crew to begin rushing to the lifeboats. Just as the crew were tearing into the canvas covers of the lifeboats, the I-17 began to open fire with her 5.5-inch guns. Captain Signs would later recall, Five shots were fired at us. One apparently aimed at our radio antenna. Burst in the air above the stern, fragments fell all over the deck. One of the shells had exploded in mid-air, showering the freighter with fragments. Samoa cranked up to full speed, trying to flee for San Diego, forcing the I-17 to chase her down. The I-17 eventually fired a torpedo, but it passed right underneath the Samoa and exploded at a safe distance on the other side. Captain Sines recalled, we all saw the telltale wake of a torpedo coming directly at us amidship. It was too late to do more than just wait for our destiny. Then a miracle happened. The torpedo went directly beneath us, didn't even touch the hull, and continued beyond. A short distance away, it exploded. There was a huge shower accompanied by smoke and flames. Garments from the torpedo also fell on our deck. Luckily for the Samoa, the torpedo's explosion made the Japanese think that she was hit and sinking, so they submerged and left the scene, allowing the Samoa to escape to San Diego. Captain Nishio radioed the I-15, which was off of San Francisco at the time, that he had just sunk an American merchantman. Two days later, on December the 20th, Nishio got his second chance to hit an American merchantman. At around 1.30 in the afternoon, the I-17 found the Sokono Vacuum Oil Company's tanker, Medio, just 20 miles off the coast of Cape Metodisnio. Captain Clark Farrow's crew received a report of submarines hunting in the area, and his crew saw the I-17 around a quarter mile off her stern. Captain Farrow cranked the ship to full speed, trying to escape to Eureka. Captain Farrow recalled, Full speed! and dumped ballast, but we had no chance to escape. We were rapidly overtaken. The sub was making 20 knots. I tried to get behind her, but the sub reversed course and kept after us. Realizing running was hopeless, Captain Farrell ordered his crew to send an SOS, accompanied by the words, under attack by enemy sub. No sooner had the message been sent when the I-17 began to open up fire with her deck gun. The first shot taking out her radio antenna. Two more shells struck Medio, with one destroying a lifeboat. Captain Farrell killed the engine and hoisted a white flag ordering his crew to the lifeboats. He recalled, Three of the crew, R.W. Pennington, Fred Potts, and Stuart McGillivray, were attempting to launch one of the boats when a shell struck it, spilling them into the water. Other lifeboats were put over the side to search for the three missing men, but we just couldn't find them. With the exception of the four men still on board and three men thrown overboard, the remaining crew of 36 managed to row away from the Medio. After 10 minutes of rowing, the I-17 made a last shot at a Medio before submerging. 
It turned out the SOS was received and two army bombers arrived to the scene. Farrell recalled, it may have been 10 or 15 minutes after the SOS when two U.S. bombers came roaring overhead from the coast. To us in the lifeboats, it was a welcome sight. One of the two planes circling where the sub had gone dropped a depth charge. We couldn't tell if it hit or not. At around 2.35 p.m., the Army bombers left the area and the I-17 resurfaced. It turned out Captain Nishio was willing to risk being hit by American bombers in order to fire a torpedo at the abandoned American merchantmen, Captain Farrow recalled. We were still looking out where the sub went down when we saw its periscope slowly push up above the surface. While still partially submerged, it fired a torpedo from 200 yards. We could see the trail as it sped straight for the ship. It struck with a loud explosion. Aboard the Emidio was Radio Man Foot, who was trying to jerry-rig another antenna to prepare another SOS when the torpedo hit. Foot managed to get out another SOS just in time and jumped overboard. Another crewman, oiler B.F. Moeller, fireman Kenneth Kimes, and the third engineer, R.W.A. Winters, were still at their stations aboard in the engine room when the torpedo hit and outstandingly, Muller saw the torpedo penetrate the engine room bulkhead and pass so close to him that he recalled, I could have reached out and touched it. It exploded on the other side of the engine room, and it killed Kimes and Winters outright. Despite three broken ribs and a punctured lung, Muller somehow swam and climbed aboard a lifeboat. More army bombers showed up depth-charging the sub as the I-17 just submerged again. Despite the torpedo hit, the Amidio did not sink. Several days later, she ran aground on a pile of rocks off Crescent City, California, an incredible 85-mile journey. The 31 survivors ended up rowing for 16 hours and over 20 miles through some really choppy seas until a U.S. Coast Guard rescued them a few miles off Humboldt Bay. The Amidio wreck eventually broke in two, with the bow section drifting into the harbor, Today, there is a commemorative plaque declared California Historical Landmark number 497. At around the same time the Amidio was being attacked by the I-17, the I-23 was stalking the tanker SS Agwiworld, 20 miles off Cypress Point near Santa Cruz. At 2.15pm, an explosion off the stern of the ship alerted the captain, one Frederick Goncalves, to run to the bridge. He amongst his crew could see 500 yards away the I-23 trying to get her broadsides on the ship. Goncalves recalled, I ordered the helm hard to port and I headed straight for it. But when the second shot came, I put the helm hard over the starboard and presented my stern to the sub. Although the submarine commanded by Captain Genichi Shibata was much faster than the Agwiworld, the swells of the sea were quite heavy, so heavy, in fact, the deck gun crew ran the risk of being cast overboard. The sub frantically chased the zigzagging tanker, and Goncalves recalled, The sub didn't chase us into port exactly. We were zigzagging around, maneuvering always to present the smallest possible target. The sub circled and dodged, trying to get broadside of us, but never succeeded. 
As we neared land and the sub fired the last of its eight shots, four of which splashed water onto the deck, it quickly submerged. In the end, the submarine was unable to outmaneuver her while simultaneously firing. The I-23 fired eight shells at the tanker, missing each time before she just gave up and submerged. On December the 21st, the I-19 was stalking around an unescorted ally merchantman, the Norwegian freighter Panama Express. She fired a single torpedo at her, but missed. A chase ensued, to which the crew of the Panama Express state they were fired upon multiple times by two submarines, but this might have been an exaggeration. The Panama Express managed to steer away in any case. The next morning of December the 22nd, the standard oil company tanker, SSHM Story, was 55 miles north of Santa Barbara, around Point Arguello. For two days, Captain Matsamura Kanji, aboard the I-21, laid waiting, submerged less than two miles off Point Aguero. Just when the HM Story was about to go past Point Aguero, the I-21 fired a torpedo. A local woman at a lonely beach of Point Aguero alongside a young high school student named Jack Sutton, saw the torpedo. They recalled, I later saw a long dark object leave the smokescreen, heading in the general direction of the ship. Watching the object that must have been a torpedo, it closed the gap between itself and the ship, and at times came to the surface and kicked up a white spray. The last I could see of the torpedo, it passed right in front of the ship. I heard a dull explosion and saw smoke arising from the sea. At first, I couldn't tell what it was. But a few minutes later, heavy smoke began to settle over. The water, like a smoke screen. To the northwest of the screen, and about three miles from shore, I could see the tanker speeding up the coast. The explosion was followed by the I-21's deck gun going off. But because of the smoke, the gunner crew couldn't see anything. So the submarine submerged and fired two more torpedoes, but both missed. A U.S. Navy patrol plane, which had been alerted to the presence of multiple submarines at this point, saw the enemy sub and began to drop depth charges, forcing the I-21 to submerge and flee the scene. Having failed to take down the HM story, the I-21 headed north in search of another target, which it would find at 3 a.m. the same day, the Richmond Oil Company tanker Larry Donahue. The I-21 opened fire with her deck gun, waking up the captain of the Larry Donahue, Captain Roy Breland. The oiler quickly performed zigzagging maneuvers throughout the night. The captain, Matsumura, was about to call off the chase when one of his lookouts spotted another tanker just 200 yards to port. Captain Matsumura ordered his crew to fire torpedo immediately at the new tanker. At 5.30 on December the 23rd, the SS Montebello, captained by Olaf Walfried Ekstrom, was sailing from Port St. Louis, bound for Vancouver, when she was suddenly hit amidship by a torpedo launched from the I-21, luckily hitting the only compartment not loaded with gasoline. Watchman William Srez recalled, The torpedo smashed a square amidship and there was a big blast, and the ship shuddered and trembled, and we knew she was done for. The crew began lowering the lifeboats as the I-21 opened fire with her deck gun at nearly point-blank range. Captain Ekstrom recalled, 
The sub began shelling us. There was from 8 to 10 flashes. One hit the foremast, snapping it. Another whistled by my head so close I could have reached out and touched it. But there was no panic, no hysteria. We got all four lifeboats into the water. Splinters from one of the shells struck some of the boats, but by some kind of miracle, none of us were wounded. Despite the torpedo hit, Exquim was not convinced the Montebello would sink, so he told the men to row out to a safe distance, but that they would return when the sub left. As 36 men rowed for their lives, the I-21 opened fire with her machine guns on the helpless sailors. The boats carrying Exquim, Shrez, and four other crewmen were hit. Shrez recalled, Machine gun bullets hit our boat, and she began leaking like a sleeve. We began rowing shoreward, with some of us leaning on the oars for all we were worth, and others bailing. The I-21 sent a few more shells into the Montebello before fleeing the scene. On the morning of December the 24th, the lumber schooner, Barbara Olson, was quietly sailing for San Diego when she was rocked by an explosion 100 feet off her seaward side. None of her crew would know what caused the explosion, but it was a torpedo launched from the I-19. The torpedo had gone under her and blown up on the other side. About four miles away, the Navy sub-chaser, the USS Amethyst, was on patrol off Los Angeles Harbor, and her lookouts were attracted to the sound of a blast, so the Amethyst went in the direction of the blast to check it out. Four hours later, the I-19 was just a few miles north off of Point Furman, near San Pedro, where she found the lumber freighter SS Absaroca entering the Catalina Channel. At around 10.30 a.m., the I-19 shot two torpedoes with one missing and the other striking 50 feet aft of Absaroca's beam. Seaman Joseph Scott was the first to see the sub, and he recalled, It was mid-morning, and all hands were up. When I looked off to the starboard, I saw a whale. At least, I was about to say, look over yonder, a whale. When I changed my mind and I yelled, there was a Jap submarine. The second torpedo blast knocked four crew into the sea and tossed a ton of lumber into the air as if they were matchsticks. A 10-foot wall of lumber spiraled into a crewman, killing him instantly, and his body tumbled overboard alongside hundreds of board feet of lumber. Within minutes, the ship's crew were getting into lifeboats as the Absaroka began to tilt. Seeing the state of the freighter, the I-19 figured she was a goner, and suddenly army bombers arrived to the scene trying to death charge the submarine. The I-19 submerged and fled the scene just as the Amethyst arrived, also trying to death charge the enemy. Though the Montebello was injured and tilting, she did not sink, but instead managed to beach herself off Fort MacArthur. Can't escape Douglas MacArthur in this series, can we? There, the USS Amethyst aided her survivors. For the planned finale to the seven days of attacks on the West Coast shipping, early on Christmas Day, eight submarines were to select their choice of targets while the I-9 made its way to the Panama Canal. They were supposed to fire 30 shells at their chosen targets and to flee to the Marshall Islands. But this never happened. According to some post-war documents from the combined fleet HQ in Tokyo, the Christmas attack was cancelled last minute out of fear 
that heavy American anti-submarine forces made it far too risky at that point. However, there has been another explanation for this. Back on December the 22nd, an unexpected order came to postpone the December 25th attack for December the 27th instead. This order came directly from Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. It turns out Yamamoto wanted to avoid attacking during the Christian holiday out of fear it would offend their German and Italian allies. I personally feel this is just a bullshit myth. There's a lot less credibility for this one. But you know what, it's one of those silly things that you just want to believe, so take it as you will. Five days later, Rear Admiral Tsutomu Saito on his flagship, the I-9, notified headquarters that the submarine force was now low on fuel, and this would complicate the return to Japan. So, Admiral Yamamoto called off the attack altogether. Now, despite the order not to shell the American coast, one submarine, the I-15, ignored the orders and decided to go Leroy Jenkins on this one. The I-15 was lingering around Farallon Islands. For those unfamiliar, that's right in front of San Francisco. The I-15 had failed to intercept U.S. shipping and decided it literally was going to make a pot shot at the Golden Gate Bridge. The I-15 fired a 6,000-pound Type 93 Longlance torpedo directly at the longest suspension bridge in the world at the time. If the torpedo hit one of the towers, the entire bridge may have been compromised. Fortunately, the torpedo was fired most likely from a very, very long distance away, and instead of hitting the bridge, found itself landing in a sandbank on the Marshall's Beach. The Marshall's Beach is just a little bit to the right of the bridge. That torpedo remained there until 1946 when the thing was found half buried in the sandbank causing a large investigation. It's a pretty crazy story. And there's actually a picture you can Google of them finding the torpedo. It's, uh, it's pretty nuts. You get to see how close it got to hitting the bridge basically just from that picture alone. Just imagine if the I-15 got a very lucky hit. Taking down the Golden Gate Bridge certainly would have affected America. Now, because of the submarine attacks of December of 1941, the U.S. coastal defenses were strengthened. Fort MacArthur installed two 155mm cannons and a machine gun's nest at the end of Redondo Pier, known as Tactical Battery 3. Other batteries were installed at the Pacific Palisades, Playa del Rey, El Segundo, Hyperion, Manhattan Beach, Rocky Point, and Long Point. Now, for a brief amount of time, there was no attacks. But come February, they resumed. At 7 p.m. on February the 23rd of 1942, just as countless Americans were settling in to listen to the President FDR's fireside chat on the radio, the I-17 surfaced near the coast of Elwood. Captain Nishio Kozo chose the Elwood Richfield Oil Company refinery as a target to shell. A very popular story, more like a myth, states Kozo Nishio visited Elwood many times before the war as a captain of an oil tanker. This has been proven to be false, however. Commander Nishio had been in the IJN since 1920, and he never piloted any oil tankers. 
The oil wood oil installations were one of the largest oil fields in California, and unlike San Francisco or Los Angeles, it did not have a major military presence, making it an attractive target. It was defended by two obsolete World War I howitzers, Captain Bernard Hagen of the 143rd Field Artillery, 40th Division, was in charge of the units at Hagen Battery A. There was also a Coast Guard patrol boat, but it was off duty on the 23rd. Nishio ordered his men to commence firing at 7.15pm, and their first rounds landed close to one of the storage facilities. Most of the oil workers had gone home for the night, but a few remained on duty and heard the noise. Many of them suspected it was some kind of internal explosion, but one worker spotted the I-17. One oiler named Brown immediately called the police. The I-17 fired its first of what will be 17 rounds, aimed at the Richfield Aviation fuel tanks, stored just behind the beach. Most of the shells fell into the water, overshot the target, or landed as duds. It turns out it was so damn dark the gunners had no idea what they were shooting at. By 7.35, assuming the Americans would be hot on his tail, Captain Nishio fired his last round and made his retreat. The attack did only slight damage to the derrick, pump house, Elwood Pier, and a catwalk, amounting to a few hundred dollars worth of repairs. While this amounted to just about nothing, it still caused immense panic as mainland America had been attacked. Local residents of Elwood jumped into their cars and drove madly inland, trying to escape a potential invasion. Captain Hagen and a master sergeant went to the refinery to defuse the dud rounds when one detonated sending shrapnel to hit Hagen. Hagen would be America's only assigned service member to receive a purple heart from a wound received by enemy attacks on American soil. It's kind of interesting how things work like that, eh? Now, the Elwood attack, alongside the December attacks, caused quite a bit of hysteria on the western coast. Following the Elwood attack, on February the 24th, the Office of Naval Intelligence issued a warning that an attack on mainland California could be expected within the next 10 hours. Now, what I'm about to talk about is one of the most hilarious and meme-worthy moments of the Pacific War. Well, for a select group of people who are even aware of this event. You really would be forgiven if you've never heard of this event, because they pretty much covered it up, because it was so embarrassing. If some of you listened to Dan Carlin, uh, one of his relatives, I don't know if it was his grandfather or his father or his uncle, partook in this event, and he told the story quite well. It was actually quite hilarious. I liked it. Anyways, uh, carrying on. You really have to put yourself in the shoes of the people at the time to understand how this one goes down. Inexperienced pilots, radar men, fishermen, whalers, navy guys were mistaking everything they saw in the coast as Japanese submarines or surface ships. Everyone was, you know, in a panic and they were freaking out. The entire population was in a state of anxiety. People literally thought the Japanese might invade. Which is rather hilarious when you think about the Japanese logistical capabilities during World War II. I mean, come on, they were struggling with the Dutch East Indies here. Well, all of this paranoia really came to hold 
during a single night on February the 24th of 1942. At around midnight, a report was sent out to anti-aircraft batteries on the heights overlooking Los Angeles that enemy planes had been spotted. Everyone remained calm until 2 a.m., when military radar picked up what they assumed to be enemy contact some 120 miles west of Los Angeles. Air raid sirens began to sound off, and a citywide blackout was put into effect. Thousands of air raid wardens rushed to their positions, sweeping the skies with their searchlights. What's that old saying? If you are looking for something, you will eventually find it? At 3.16 a.m., someone saw something in the sky and soon the 37th Coastal Artillery Brigade began firing their .50 caliber machine guns and their 12.8 pound anti-aircraft batteries right into the air. Soon the entire coastline defense began tossing up lead right into the sky over Santa Monica. The chaos reigned for minutes. Coastal Artillery Corps Colonel John Murphy would later write, Imagination could have easily disclosed many shapes in the sky in the midst of that weird symphony of noise and color. But cold detachment disclosed no planes of any type in the sky, friendly or enemy. Yet many others made reports they saw aircraft flying in formation, some even dropping bombs and paratroopers, panicky stuff. There was a single claim that a Japanese aircraft crash-landed in the streets of Hollywood. Coastal artilleryman Charles Patrick wrote in a letter, I could barely see the planes, but they were up there all right. I could see six planes, and shells were bursting all around them. Naturally, all of us fellows were anxious to get our two cents worth in, and when the command came, everybody cheered like a son of a gun. The crazy barrage lasted an hour until an order was given to finally stop. Over 1,400 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition was fired. American military units soon discovered there were no bombs dropped, nor aircraft shot down. Ironically, the only damage incurred was from the 1,400 anti-aircraft rounds fired directly into the sky. As you might imagine, a lot of these rounds that went straight upwards fell back downwards and several buildings and vehicles were damaged. One dud careened into a Long Beach golf course, several residents had their homes destroyed by 3-inch artillery shells, but in the end no one was seriously injured by the shelling and anti-aircraft rounds. However, on a sad note, five civilians did end up dying. Two from heart attacks, some elderly folk I would imagine, and three from car crashes, those poor people. The event is now infamously known as the Battle of Los Angeles, and it was kept under wraps until 1983, when the US Air Force finally admitted the truth of what had occurred. In the end, it turned out someone saw a runaway weather balloon. Can't make that up. For those of you who are into conspiracies, uh, a lot of people thought it was a UFO at the time, and a lot of the World War II UFO sightings uh, came from this one. On June the 7th, the I-26, after taking part in the opening stages of the Aleutian Islands campaign, began to stalk the SS Coast Trader as it left the Strait of Juan de Fuca. 
The I-26 fired a torpedo, hitting the coast trader in her starboard side, flooding her very quickly. Captain of the ship, Lyle Havens, managed to get his entire crew into two life rafts as the I-26 left the scene. Unfortunately, one crewmate would die of exposure before they were rescued. After this attack, the I-26 decided to attack a brand new enemy, Canada. At around 10pm on June the 20th, the I-26 was patrolling the coast of British Columbia when it surfaced just two miles off Estevan Point's lighthouse. The I-26 then began to open fire with her deck gun. This was the first direct attack on Canadian territory since the Fenian raids of the 1860s. You know... I just have to say something, since I am a Canadian, like, almost nobody knows about those raids, and they're pretty interesting. To brutally summarize and give you some bad history, it was basically America just sending a bunch of Irish immigrants to conquer Canada. And while it sounds silly, it was a legitimate threat to the country. Anyways, Lightkeeper Mike Laley was on duty along with the chief wireless operator Edward T. Redford of Port Aberney. Mike was in the 30-meter tower when he saw smoke on the horizon, and at 9.30, he recalled, At 9.30, a ship came into sight. She was zigzagging. At 10.14, she came straight for the lighthouse. A minute later, she threw in a marker which hit on a rock. Then came two geysers. Then she threw them in fast, three at a time. Two from the big ship and one from the little one. I saw the flashes. It is hard to say the distance. The submarine seemed two miles and a big ship about eight or ten miles long. Mike quickly turned off the light as the shells rained until 10.30. He was a veteran of the Great War. He stayed to observe the shelling. Fortunately, the I-26 missed with all 17 shots to hit the lighthouse. As recalled by Yokota, a gunner aboard the I-26 that night, it was evening when I shelled the area with about 17 shots. Because of the dark, our gun crew had difficulty in making our shots effective. At first, the shells were way too short, not reaching the shore. I remember very vividly yelling at the crew, raise the gun, raise the gun, to shoot at a higher angle. Then the shells went way too far over the little community towards the hilly area. Even out at sea, we could hear the pigs in a farmyard near the lighthouse squealing as the shells exploded. Although the I-26 failed to hit its target, the aftermath caused a disproportionate effect on coastal shipping as all lighthouses along the coast were extinguished in fear of their use by the enemy. Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King informed the House of Commons on June the 22nd it was the first attack upon Canadian soil that has been made since Confederation. It only goes to bear out what has been said so often, that no one can take too seriously both the immediacy and the extent of the danger with which all parts of the world are confronted, and at this time, our own part in particular. It was a very small and odd story for the Pacific War, to be sure. Near where the Columbia empties into the Pacific Ocean stands Fort Stevens, an American military installation built near the end of the American Civil War. It was named for Washington's first territorial governor and Civil War casualty, Isaac Stevens. 
It was part of a system of three forts protecting the mouth of the river. Fort Stevens on the Oregon side, Fort Canby, and Fort Columbia both being on the Washington side. By 1941, Fort Stevens held 10-inch coastal defense guns, antiques left from World War I, two 12-inch motors, and a few 6-inch disappearing guns. The fort was manned by the Oregon Army National Guards, the 249th Coastal Artillery Battalion led by one Lieutenant Colonel Lifton M. Irwin, and the 18th Coastal Artillery. On June the 21st, just before midnight, the I-25, captained by Meiji Tagami, had been following some fishing boats to avoid minefields in the area. When it surfaced at the mouth of the Columbia River, and at around 11.30 p.m. began to fire 17 rounds from its deck gun in the direction of Fort Stevens. Almost instantly, from various batteries and multiple tents came men tumbling out into the darkness, many wearing their underwear, but ready to repel the enemy. Within minutes, the gun battery teams and searchlight operators were ready for battle. Tagami expected immediate return fire so he ordered his gun crews to fire as quickly as possible without bothering to aim properly. Lieutenant Colonel Irwin was away that night. The man in charge was Colonel Donnie, and he refused to allow the men to open fire. For the next 30 minutes, as the sub fired on the shore with its deck gun, the men begged Donnie to let them unleash hell. One man named Lindstrom, who was there, recalled, They were all calling in, pleading, begging, but Commander Donnie refused and threatened to court-martial an entire regiment if anybody fired. Donnie was not wrong in his assessment. He ordered an immediate blackout of the fort so as to not reveal any positions there. The submarine was shooting in the dark. Some of the shells landed in a nearby baseball field, destroying its backstop. One shell landed close to Battery Russell, and another next to a concrete pillbox and one severed several large telephone cables. The I-25 made a hasty escape after doing little to no damage, but the attack on Fort Stevens, along with the Aleutian Islands campaign, helped create the 1942 full scare across the west coast. After so many operations doing honestly minimal to no damage, there would be one Japanese officer who would step up to the challenge of hurting the American mainland. Standing barely five feet tall, Warrant Officer Nabuo Fujita would be that man. His face quite chiseled, revealing a calm, confident-looking man. He was born in 1911, on a farm in central Japan, and would be conscripted into the IJN in 1931. He entered boot camp and went to Kasumugura Naval Air School. In the mid-1930s, he test-piloted experimental seaplanes and in 1937 served six months in the China War, flying rescue missions along the Yangtze River. He returned to Japan the following year and became a flight instructor. Soon, he joined the Submarine Aviation Unit in 1941. Before departing for deployment, his father entrusted him with the family's precious heirloom, a centuries-old katana. Fujita's launch platform was the submarine I-25, one of the 29 Type B submarines designed to carry small reconnaissance planes. The thinking behind the design was that these submarines could launch reconnaissance planes to extend the submarine's scouting range by hundreds of miles. 
Other nations had conducted similar experiments before World War II, but the IGN would be the only major power to really deploy them. The Type B submarines were impressive, superior in many ways to the American Gato class, the standard U.S. submarine at the beginning of World War II. They were 356 by 45 feet, weighing 1,100 tons, and had a range of 14,000 miles with a top speed of 23.5 knots. Their reconnaissance plane was the Yokosuka E-14Y Glen floatplane, the Type Zero model. This particular model was capable of being stored and launched from submarines to perform reconnaissance and small-scale bombing operations. The Glen had folding wings and was transported in a watertight capsule carried in sections inside a streamlined steel hangar just ahead of the submarine's coning tower. A seven-man aircrew could assemble its 12 components in around 15 minutes and launch it from a compressed air catapult on the foredeck. A very impressive feat of ingenuity for its day. During the attack on Pearl Harbor, the I-25 was stationed 140 miles northeast of Oahu, with some other submarines looking out for any American ships trying to escape the chaos at Pearl Harbor. At this time, Fujita was relegated to stand regular watches in the I-25's control room, a duty he found to be a complete waste of his valuable flying skill. Now a week later, a much more exciting assignment came up for the nine submarines to take up positions off the American West Coast. It was during this time period where Fujita conceived an idea. He reckoned that instead of just scouting, the submarine seaplanes could carry bombs and hit Allied shipping, specifically the Panama Canal locks, or perhaps aircraft facilities along the American West Coast. He shared this idea with executive officers who encouraged him to send it to the IGN High Command. Fujita recalled, I laughed. Who would listen to a mere farm boy? Regardless of him being a mere farm boy, he wrote it up and a officer promised to forward it to the HQ. Fast forward a bit in time and Fujita got some new exciting missions. He was going to do reconnaissance over Australia and New Zealand to determine the shipping there. Oh yes, a callback to our episode on the disastrous attack on Sydney Harbour. Fujita was one of the same pilots who did a survey of Sydney. Then in June, as part of Operation MI, Fujita was tasked with scouting the military facilities at Dutch Harbour for the Aleutian Islands campaign. Now, when he returned to Japan in mid-July to see his wife and son, as he was landing home, he was grabbed almost immediately and told to report to the Naval HQ. He thought he might be in some really big trouble, he recalled. I was quite scared. I was very nervous. As he entered an inner office, he was stunned to see Prince Takematsu, Emperor Hirohito's younger brother. Another officer, a commander, Ira, began the meeting by saying to Fujita, Fujita, you are going to bomb the American mainland. Fujita was shocked. He recalled, I was speechless. My mind considered Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. Perhaps I could hit a carrier. The whole thing seemed like a dream. Another officer shook his hand in reverence. This man was Isaku Akamoto, a former vice consul 
or Seattle, and an expert on the Pacific Northwest and its history of wildfires. Pointing to a map of Oregon, he said to Fujita, You will bomb these forests. Fujita was quite puzzled about all of this, and he thought to himself, Any cadet could bomb a forest. What do they need me for? When the men saw Fujita's face, they began to explain it to him. They would start a fire in the forest that would grow to immense proportions. They told Fujita in September of 1936, one wildfire had destroyed 287,000 acres of Oregon forest and wiped out the coastal town of Bandon, killing 11 people. Such a massive fire, aside from causing panic and chaos, it could force the United States to divert naval resources to the west coast rather than the Solomon Islands. Fujita began to understand the reasoning, and he felt much better about this mission. On September the 9th, surfacing just 33 miles off Oregon's Cape Blanco lighthouse was the I-25. Her deck was swarming with activity, men trying to prepare Fujita's aircraft. Fujita took a strand of his own hair and placed it in a small wooden box, proclaiming to the men around him, If I were to die and my body could not be recovered, these remains will be sent back to my wife. Fujita was quite scared. He did not think he would come back alive. So Fujita and his bombardier, Petty Officer Shoji Akuda, propelled off the I-25 carrying two 168-pound incendiary bombs. Fujita steered the aircraft towards the mountain ranges, recalling, I thought how beautiful the sunrise was as it gradually climbed above the ridge of the mountains. Fujita soon was flying over the lumbering town of Brooking, near Mount Emily, which stood 2,925 feet tall. As he approached her summit, he turned southeast, and when he was around three miles inland, he got to a height of 500 feet and ordered Akuda to drop the first incendiary bomb in the forest. Fujita recalled, We watched carefully. Moments later, we saw the scattering of flickering fires. It gave me great satisfaction to get some revenge for the bombing of my homeland by Doolittle's raiders. So, you see, a lot of the Japanese had the Doolittle Raid on their head. Then, Fujita and his comrade dropped a second bomb as they turned around to get back to the submarine. Around just past noon, Howard Raz Gardner, a Forest Service fire lookout, was watching over the forest from a tower on Mount Emily's Peak when he saw some white smoke. He alerted HQ by radio, but then saw a plane circling about. Gardner traveled for three hours through the forest to the smoke, a sight at Wheeler Ridge. Upon arrival, he was amazed to see it was not just a single fire, but dozens, all burned quite brightly. Right away, he began to use his shovel and axe to clear brush as other fire team members arrived to the scene. One of the men noticed a crater, and they all realized a bomb had been dropped. The workers found metal fragments over a 50-foot radius. One firefighter said, By God, there's enough stuff here to have set the whole of Curry County on fire. 
However, this would not occur. Thankfully, because a heavy rainstorm had hit the area for the past few days, making the woods wet and curtailing any fire from spreading. Most of the thermite pellets from the bomb had failed to explode because of the damp conditions. The bombing mission did make headlines in Japan, though. On September the 17th, 1942, the Asahi Shimbun had made a headline reading, Incendiary bomb dropped on Oregon. First air raid on mainland America. Big shock to the Americans. The attack also made the front page news across the U.S. on the Oregon Coos Bay Times, and even the New York Times, but there was no real panic. So Fujita was sent again on a second bombing mission just three weeks later to hit near Port Orford, 50 miles north of the town of Brookings. The results were identical. It turns out just yet again, some rain had happened a few days before the bombing, so everything was too damp for the bombs to really take off. For the rest of the Pacific War, Fujita would spend it at a flight school training kamikaze pilots. Not a particularly nice job, I would say. When the war came to an end, Fujita was a very disappointed man. He had received no promotions, no bonuses, and above all else, no glory. Then in 1960, he was approached by an American Navy journalist named Joseph Harrington, who had found Fujita, now a family man who owned a hardware store in Tokyo. Harrington had heard about Fujita's exploits while working on an English translation for a book about Japanese suicide submarines. The man persuaded Fujita to co-author on account of his wartime experiences. The result was a book titled, I Bombed the USA, published in June of 1961 by the U.S. Naval Institute's Proceeding Magazine. Fujita was somewhat satisfied, to say the least. He had gained some recognition for his war experience. He went back to his life thinking no more of the matter. Then, over 5,000 miles across the Pacific, in the town of Brookings, Oregon, a man named Doyle Rasich told some friends about the time a Japanese pilot bombed the local forest. None of his friends had ever heard about this event. One of these friends, the town dentist named Bill McChesney, would later tell a filmmaker named Yolanda Sol about the story. She ended up creating the 2019 documentary titled Samurai in the Oregon Sky. The friends wondered if the pilot was still alive. One of them, Doug Peterson, suggested that they should track him down and ask to invite him to the town. Which is, in retrospect, really weird. It's a really weird thing to do. Inviting the guy that tried to bomb your town over? I mean, I, I kind of get the mentality there, but it's, it's a little weird. Well, if they succeeded, it could be seen as a gesture of international peace and friendship. That was their mentality going into this. So in autumn of 1961, Nabuo Fujita, then 50 years old, got quite a surprise when he was offered an invitation to become the guest of honor at the 23rd annual Brookings Azalea Festival. The event took place in May, and Fujita was understandably very suspicious. He recalled thinking to himself then, I was quite sure I would be beaten up. People would throw eggs and shout insults at me. 
Fujita even wondered, legitimately, if they would put him on trial for war crimes. Nonetheless, Fujita made the trip with his family. The local police took all the precautions of jailing some of the loud dissenters. This included Mr. Gardner, the man who had first spotted the fire. He had to be put in jail. So, lest you think there were no protesters to Mr. Fujita coming over, there, there were quite a, a few, but not too, too many. So, on May the 24th of 1962, Fujita, his wife Ayeko, and his son Yasuyoshi arrived in the town of Brookings. They were presented with the key to the city, and the next day rode at the head of the Azalea Festival Parade. They enjoyed a crab feast and an outdoor church service. A special treat was in store for Fujita and his son that afternoon as they climbed into a Piper light aircraft and flew over Mount Emily and the forest he had once tried to light ablaze two decades before. When asked if he would like to take the controls, Fujita eagerly accepted. Just, you know what, to me that's just a little bit messed up, I don't know, it's just a little weird. The next evening, the town held a grand banquet for the Japanese family. Fujita had his own surprise for the people of Brookings. He presented them with his family's 400-year-old katana, the same one he carried with him throughout the Pacific War. He said to the audience as he did so, This is my finest way of closing this story. It is the samurai tradition to pledge peace and friendship by presenting a sword to a former enemy. His son then handed to the mayor, C. Fell Campbell, the katana. For three decades, Nabu Fujita made several more visits to the town of Brookings, donating books about international relations to its community, and he hosted a visit to Japan for a group of high school students. One week before his death, in September of 1997, Fujita was made an honorary citizen of the town of Brookings. The following year, his daughter, Asakura, visited the bombing site in the forest near Mount Emily to spread some of his ashes. She said of her father, He felt his soul would forever be flying over the forest. Today, his katana still holds a place of honor in the main reading room in the Brookings Community Library. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check my personal channel out at the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube? It would mean a lot to me. Uh, kind of a heartwarming ending, isn't it? You don't get too many of those in the Pacific War, to be sure. The Japanese attacks on the American West Coast were, quite frankly, insignificant. Merely done to cause terror. And in many ways, they accomplished just that. Just ask the people of Los Angeles in 1942. The American home front could breathe easier, but the horrors of war would still rage in the Asia-Pacific. <laughs>